This is Everyday Wellness, a podcast dedicated to helping you achieve your health and wellness goals and provide practical strategies that you can use in your real life. And now, here is your host, nurse practitioner Cynthia Thurlow. Today, I had the honor and privilege of connecting with two really dynamic women that are helping to change the narrative around the carnivore-ish diet. Beth Lipton is a recipe developer, food and wellness writer, and a cookbook author. I've had the honor of working with her on my own book, Intermittent Fasting Transformation, I have 45. She's incredibly talented. She is joined by Ashley Van Houten, who is a health coach, speaker, podcast with an author of the only nose to tail organ meat center cookbook, It Takes Guts. She's also the host of the Muscle Maven radio podcast. I had the honor of connecting with them earlier today to dive into their new book, Carnivore-ish. We spoke about the weight loss and weight management industry, the impact of our mindset around food and food choices, especially as women, the need for more nutrient density, especially with protein, conflicts between plant-based versus animal-based diets, what actually encompasses a carnivore-ish diet, what are the benefits, how to go about integrating more organ meat into your lifestyle, specifically how to eat nose to tail and strategize about how to find a methodology that affiliates with your own lifestyle. We dove into some of the myths surrounding protein consumption. We did touch on favorite spices and ways to liven up your meals. I hope you will enjoy our conversation. I think this book will be hugely impactful for individuals that are looking to be inspired to lean towards a more animal-based protein diet. And especially for those that are interested slash curious about organ meats, I certainly learned a lot and I know you will as well. Today, I'm delighted and excited to have Beth and Ashley here with me to talk about their new book. But before we dive into your book, which I thoroughly enjoyed reading, I would love to really unpack a lot of the kind of diet culture that we have that is so pervasive here in the United States, and obviously most westernized cultures. And a recent statistic that I pulled up is that the weight loss and weight management industry is a $192.2 billion industry, which is staggering. And yet I think on so many levels as a clinician, as a woman, I just think if we were teaching others how to eat a nutrient-dense diet, there wouldn't be the need for all these concepts of quick fixes and you know strategies that are not sustainable. And I'm curious to kind of start the discussion there that you know, you both come to this platform from different backgrounds and what you've seen. I mean, actually, obviously you're in the fitness industry of an incredible podcast Beth. you have this proliferative food industry background and you're a chef, how, what your own perception is of the things that we're, we're doing right per se, or not doing right in terms of looking at food as medicine, food as nutrition, as opposed to the kind of quick fix concepts, which I think have really become pervasive and are just an active component in our culture? That's a huge question. We could, <laughs> we could just do the whole podcast on that one. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Beth, I'll try to start here really quick. You know, I think that one of the tough things it's, we try not to like 
vilify one entire massive industry, right? Because all three of us are part of this industry. So, mm-hmm. you know, to say that it's deeply problematic, especially how we market food and fitness plans and ideologies to women, it is problematic, but there are lots of people out there trying to do it right. I think, you know, present company included, you know, maybe I'm biased, but I think we're trying to do it the right way. And I think one of the biggest issues, like from a purely kind of capitalist, like making money standpoint is that, the way we're trying to do it versus the quick fix way is that ideally, if we can teach you and empower you and get you to get it, you won't need anybody's help anymore. You know, you don't need to keep signing up for workout plans and diet, you know, whatever. You can just kind of understand what food does for you and how to use it and how to enjoy it and kind of go on with your life. Whereas the whole, the industry is set up for the cyclical effect of like doing it, seeing some results that are really exciting, plateauing or falling off and freaking out and starting again and on and on into eternity. So I think that that's sort of like one of the main like red flags for me is if I'm looking to work with a coach or work with somebody on my nutrition, which I do, somebody who like has clients forever or is continuing to try to like work this cyclical kind of effect, that doesn't work for me. I want to, instead of just being told what to do and then do it and hope that I can sustain it, I want to be taught why maybe they're recommending I do something and kind of really learn and empower myself. And I think that's what we're trying to do with the book too, because really there is no quick fix. The wording is right there. It's quick fix. It fixes things quickly, but not permanently and not sustainably. So it's an uphill battle, but that's what we're here to do. Yeah, no. And and I think it's really important for people to understand that we want to help educate people. So, you know, the whole concept of that parable of you teach a man to fish, they'll be able to, you know, feed themselves forever as opposed to just giving them a handout. And, And I think that's very aligned, like this whole education platform that we all stand from. We want to empower women and individuals to be able to go out on their own and to be able to make this a sustainable strategy. Beth, I'm sure you have some insights and you're coming at it from an equally kind of different viewpoint and perspective as someone that has been in the industry, you know, creating delicious recipes. And obviously you're the the person that I selected to create the recipes for my own book. And so for full transparency, I would say, you know, I'm grateful for these platforms because it's allowed me to connect with individuals like yourselves, but Beth, I'm sure you probably have some ideas or suggestions or, and or opinions about this as well. Well, yeah, you can always count on me for opinions. (laughs) Well, thanks so much for having us, Cynthia. We really appreciate it. And, you know, I'm already a huge fan of your podcast, so I'm really honored to be be a guest. I would say that, you know, I come from the world of women's magazines, which, you know, I have to say, as much as I love that industry and have loved working in it, you know, it is very guilty of kind of, you know, always trying to sell the latest and greatest diet plan. And I've been part of that. I can't say that I haven't, but I think, you know, what Ashley said about this book is really true. One thing that we really wanted to put forth in this book is that that we have this notion in our culture that there's like fun, delicious food, and then there's healthy food and that they're not the same thing. And for us, this book is really a celebration of delicious food that is good for you. And that for me, like that's my entire mission in life is to bring that message that it's not a question of whether or not you are going to enjoy your food. You have to enjoy it. So then from there, it's like, how do you enjoy the food that you're eating and also eat food that is supportive of your health? That's going to help you reach your goals, not just your 
aesthetic goals, but also like your life goals of wanting to show up in your life and have energy and, you know, be well and not sick. And so, and also not be overweight, but I feel like if you eat in a way that's supportive of your body, the weight issue becomes less of an issue just naturally. But one thing that Ashley and I are always talking about is how, you know, any really good advice around your health is not sexy. It just isn't like, get plenty of sleep, have good relationships, manage stress, eat lots of protein. Like none of this is revolutionary advice, but it is what works. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, if someone is selling you like some, Hey, brand new, bright, shiny object, you definitely have to approach that with caution because what really works is what your grandma told you. Yeah. Right. I think it's really interesting. I call it the bag of crap, but I have a (laughs) well-meaning friend and I won't call out this company. And she was participating in this company and felt that this shake product had really helped her harness her middle age, you know, body composition that she was struggling with. And so she very nicely shared and I affectionately shared this with her. It's a bag of crap. I said, you know, she shared the bag of crap with me, which I didn't like. I read the ingredient profile. I was like, there's no way I would eat this. But I started to understand that we've gotten so far off base with what nutrition really is that for a lot of people, it's meeting that good, better, best. Like for some people, if they're going from a standard American diet that's highly processed, you know, devoid of fiber, very nutrient depleted and highly inflammatory that the bag of crap is probably better than what they had been eating before. And so really trying to not place judgment and really coming from a place of love, like all of us genuinely want women to be able to find sustainable life-term lifelong strategies. And to your point, Beth, about eating like our grandmothers did, I think about my grandparents' garden and they made everything from scratch and they just thoroughly enjoyed that. Like cooking was a demonstration of love And I think in many, many ways, a lot of our culture have, we've lost the pastime of passing cooking skills onto our children. And I think in many ways, you know, the grab and go culture has kind of made it so easy for us. We don't have to make things at home because there's always something that's portable that we can throw in our bags that we can eat, whether it's a bar or a shake. And I'm by no means am I saying I never have a shake or a bar, but generally I like to have food cooked in my kitchen as opposed to buying things from the outside world. But when people are really starting from the very beginning, if they're going from a more processed standard American diet, transitioning over to a more nutrient dense diet, what are some of the, the things that you choose to focus on with your clients in, in terms of sustainable first steps that will help them you know, start to see the improvements that they'll see in their health. And certainly the listeners know, like I come from this cardiology background where I saw like the sickest of the sickest people. And I used to always say it all starts with food. And my colleagues would kind of chuckle. They thought it was cute, but like they kind of chuckle. And I would say, you know, we're missing opportunities. They're like, we don't have time to talk about nutrition, but we really all, all need to make time to talk about nutrition. This is, you know, really the platform we all stand on. Well, I mean, I think before we even talk about the like specific recommendations we'd give, I feel like a lot of the communication is like about psychology more than it is about food, really. And I think that one of the major barriers for anyone looking to improve the way they eat, but I think specifically with women, and I say this just because of my own personal experience coaching and working with women over the years, is that we think we have to suffer to get healthier. We think it has to be this like 
dreaded, like slog through this food that we don't really enjoy and these workouts that are just horrible. And we just think it has to be suffering. And so a lot of times when we will tell someone you can and probably should eat more food, you should eat more. You should work out less, like relax a little bit more. They're like, that doesn't compute because I've been taught my entire life that you have to grind and hurt and struggle to make health improvements, which when you really break it down and think about it, doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Like breaking yourself down and depriving yourself does not to me sound like an equation for vibrant health, right? But that's what we've been taught. So oftentimes it's about being very, very, like you said, sort of meeting people where they are and being very progressive and slow with the approach. So instead of day one, what so many of us might want to say, here are all the things you should eat. Here are all the things you shouldn't eat. Here's all the ways you should move your body and work out and fix your life. That's overwhelming. It's too much. And nobody really makes changes that way. So being really, really kind of like picking low hanging fruit that can make like a big difference. And I think very often stuff that Beth and I will talk about is just thinking about improving, like adding protein, more protein to the foods you're already eating. And if you eat a salad every day for lunch, maybe think about chucking in some chicken or some steak or some shrimp. And if you normally add maybe some chickpeas and like three shrimp, maybe add like a handful of shrimp in there, like up it a little bit. Protein is kind of the centerpiece of everything we talk about when we're talking about eating healthier and more nutritious food. So I guess long story short, it is kind of just having some conversations about the idea of what eating better means. It doesn't mean being restrictive. It doesn't mean counting every single thing that goes into your mouth. And then from a practical perspective, I would say the first thing I tell everybody is just focus on protein, eat protein first, eat more protein. I mean, I totally agree with that. And obviously, and (laughs) I think also that people make food and cooking and eating very complicated. Mm -hmm. You know, they watch a show on the food network and I'm not knocking the food network. I love the food network, but like they watch a show and they think everything they make has to be like three courses and garnished. And, you know, it has to be made in a giant pristine kitchen. And, you know, I just think there's a lot of pressure on Instagram. Certainly there's a lot of pressure to make everything, you know, photo shoot worthy. And the fact is like, All you really have to do is cook yourself some scrambled eggs and you're good. So Mm -hmm. I think taking some of the perfection, I mean, we as women especially expect so much of ourselves, everything has to be perfect. So let's take some of the steam out of that and just, you know, kind of relax a little bit and just make yourself something really, really simple to eat. Just make yourself, like I said, some scrambled eggs. I mean, what's easier than that? whatever you're doing, you know, as Ashley said, just add a little more protein to it. I think also at least one of the hurdles that I run into with people is just getting the idea across that animal protein is healthy for them. There's such a pervasive message that going plant-based or more plant-based and eat less meat and eat better meat and all of that, but especially eating less of it, that is such a pervasive message. And so trying to break through that, which is why we wrote this book in the first place, you know, it's not designed, we're not here trying to like be all contrarian. And that isn't the idea. The idea is that this is something we feel really passionately about something we have looked at the science around something that has worked for both of us and for a lot of people in our community. And so we want to help people to get past the view that they, especially people who want to eat animal protein, but think they're not supposed to, if, you know, if somebody's vegetarian or vegan and they have like a religious reason or something like that, 
we wouldn't dream of telling them that what they're doing is not the right thing. But there are so many people, so many women, especially who would feel better and who do feel better. And they say it almost sheepishly, like, oh, when I get my period, all I really want is a burger and they feel bad about it. We want to strip away all of that guilt and bring and like make it a good thing, like show people that this is a good thing for your health, that eating more animal protein is okay. It's good for you. Your body is designed for it. We evolved eating it. So to me, like that's the biggest thing is getting through people's notion that they shouldn't be eating animal protein and then helping them to see that sometimes the simplest approach to feeding themselves is the best one and the right one. Thank you so much to unpack what you both said. And, and I want to touch on, I'm going to kind of touch on both things that you mentioned. I think when women are so hard on themselves, you know, that's part of our culture, it's part of the conditioning, even if we had healthy relationships with food growing up, but just the socialization piece, being around other women in high school and college and beyond, you know, whatever was modeled for us at home. And so I think a great deal about nutrient density and satiety. And I think a great deal about this calorie counting culture that we're buffering against. And so I know even in the fasting space, women will very innocently ask, how many calories do you eat a day? And I was like, I really genuinely have no idea. I don't count calories. I never enjoyed doing that. And that's not what our body recognizes. So I think it's also giving ourselves permission to look at food a little differently all of us share a wonderful friend, Dr. Gabrielle Lyon, who I talk a lot about on this podcast because, you know, muscle and animal-based protein, you know, muscle is the organ of longevity. You know, when we're talking about increasing your protein intake, that increases satiety. So, so important, especially as women are getting older, that we're maintaining lean muscle mass because that keeps us more metabolically flexible. And Beth, I love that you touched on just keeping our meals simple. If anyone sees what I put on Instagram, it is nothing except for holidays. There is nothing about my photos that are super like, you know, intricate in terms of meal preparation. I'm very straightforward. There are definitely things I lean towards, but I keep it really simple. And actually that's how my family likes their meals. And we can decide to flavor things if we choose. So I've got two people in my household who like spicy, two of us that like a little less spicy. And so there's always adjustments that are being made, but the message of keeping things simple and making slow and steady changes, I think are really helpful but let's pivot a little bit and talk about the whole concept of, you know, this plant-based versus animal-based narrative that is ongoing. I recently had the honor of bringing Vinny Tortorich on the podcast, and that will be released this month. He has a new documentary talking exactly about this. And so it's very timely that we're having this conversation. And, you know, for those people who are feeling conflicted, there is a lot of misinformation Obviously, there's a lot of propaganda that is influenced by a lot of different things that we don't need to dive down the rabbit holes that are there. But giving people permission to eat nutrient-dense animal-based protein is really important. You know, I feel like our bodies, for the most part, really thrive best when we're focused on, you know, heating those protein macros. Like I say, if you hit your protein macros, everything else will fall into place. But let's talk a little bit about the benefits of this, you know, kind of dietary philosophy where we're omnivores. We're eating meats, you know, animal-based protein. We're also eating, you know, non-starchy vegetables and healthy fats. How does, what does that look like in your lifestyles? Like I know Ashley obviously has had a huge influence on all of us 
kind of looking at differently at organ meats and looking at, you know, nutrient density. Obviously, Beth, you come around with a lot of these amazing recipes that you worked on together for the book. But let's unpack that a little bit, because I think there's still some mystery about how all this works together. And yet it should be fairly simple. I mean, really, that's that's what we're advocating for, that all of us are not making our lives more complicated, but maybe perhaps slowly introducing different types of foods, maybe unique things we've never tried before and doing it from a thoughtful place. Mm. I mean, the plant-based marketing people should win an award. They're so good at convincing people that that's the right approach to the point that we will even disregard our own body's signals, strong signals in favor of what like the mainstream trend is telling us because I have had at this point, countless women reach out to me on social media or through different channels saying, I went plant-based because I was told it was healthier. It was better for the planet. It was better for me. And this litany of health issues eventually showed up and all I wanted was a steak and I craved it and I felt so guilty. And I just want to know, like, can I start eating meat again? How should I start eating? If I want to eat a little bit of it, it's just like, it's mind blowing. Right. And I have to say, cause this is kind of topical. This is a really interesting look at how we as women treat our bodies and our health. So I just had a baby recently. He's five months old now. But when I was going through pregnancy, I was reading all the things, doing all the things, um, researching everything. And I was, by the way, eating the same as I always do, which was organ meats and meat and nutrient dense foods. And I was listening to podcasts and I was listening to all like from a variety of, of backgrounds and across the board. Everybody who had anything to do with like prenatal nutrition was saying, if you are plant-based and you are willing to eat animal products, now is the time to do it. If you are pregnant and trying to grow a human in your body, you should be eating the most nutrient-dense foods possible, the most bioavailable nutrition possible, because that is going to best support your baby's growth and development. And I even heard this from like plant-based professionals. So we step back for a second and think that to grow a human being, we are recommending you eat animal protein because it's best for their health and their development. But when you aren't growing a baby, when it's just you, whatever, just eat some chickpeas. It's fine. Don't worry about it. Like, and that's how we feel about our own person. That's the amount of, you know, sort of effort. And I guess love that we give ourselves is like, we'll do what's best for our children. But for us, it's like, eh, whatever will kind of make us skinniest is what we should go with. And I just thought that was just mind blowing to me that I was hearing again and again, even plant-based people saying, Hey, if you're willing to eat some eggs and some steak, like do it now. That was really, really eye opening for me. So anyway, I'm like running off on a tangent now, but I just thought that was like, that was really, really crucial because when even the people who aren't really meat-based advocates are telling you that, I think that's eye-opening and it's something to think about. I think it's incredibly telling. And for many people, perhaps, that aren't eating as much animal-based protein, I know when I was pregnant, I ate a lot of a lot more animal-based protein. That's just what my body craved. And so I, I think those cues and the suppression of those cues, the guilt that people feel, whether they say themselves, okay, well, I'm pregnant, I'm willing to consume animal-based protein, but then when I'm not pregnant, I'm not willing to do that. I feel like in many, many ways, a lot of the women that I work with, they're surprised that they're really woefully under eating protein. And once they make that adjustment and, and really focused on animal-based protein, their satiety cues are cued in. They're not feeling like they need snacks. They're not 
searching for chips in the evening. They're not looking for chocolate during the day. They feel much more satiated. They sleep better. Beth, I'm sure you probably see this with your, you know, your work as well, that, you know, for in many ways, if we're listening to the cues of our bodies, it's telling us something. And I think the suppression of hunger cues or the kind of concept for a lot of women is like, I'll die to be thin, or I'm fixated on the scale, or, you know, that's the focus of why I want to be thin. And I remind people, we want to be strong. We want to be satiated. We want to be happy. We want to make good neurotransmitters by giving ourselves really healthy, good, nourishing food. And for those that are listening, we make the bulk of our neurotransmitters in our gut. So if our gut's healthy, we're going to have a better mood, less depression, less anxiety, Beth, have you found that to be the case as well? I'm sure you've worked one-on-one with clients where people are are terrified to gain weight, even if they're underweight. It's like they're so undernourished, but they don't recognize that. Even patients who are obese, oftentimes they're just incredibly undernourished, but they don't realize that. Oh, I 100%. And I think what you're both saying about suppressing our cues and kind of tamping down what our bodies are telling us is very much something that we have to deal with, with women and something that we really have to fight against because I get asked these kinds of questions as well. You know, you were saying, Cynthia, about how many calories do you eat? You know, I get that question a lot, like, well, how much do you eat and how many calories and, you know, what do you eat in a day? Like those kinds of things. And I, you know, I always say like, look, I'll tell you what I eat in a day because nothing I like talking about more than food, but it's not really useful to you to know what I eat. But, you know, the other part of this is that it's much easier, you know, sort of going back to what we were talking about initially about like marketing and selling, you know, quick fixes, it's much easier to sell that. So, you know, I mean, Ashley and I have been laughing about, you know, the name of our book is Carnivore-ish, and it's much easier to sell a book that's called Carnivore, because that's something that's very, you know, it's just like eat meat all the time, the end but that's not what we're selling here and not what we're offering. And I don't knock carnivore, you know, carnivore is appropriate for some people, but I think for the vast majority of us, what works and what we're designed for and what we thrive on is a varied diet, a diet that is as varied as possible. I mean, you read the stats all the time that, you know, we only, I'm making this number up, but like we only eat like one one hundredth of the plant matter that our ancestors ate. And obviously, you know, our ancestors ate way more organ meats than we do. They tended to eat more, you know, different types of cuts of meat than we do. So, The more we can vary our diet, I mean, it's better for us. It avoids, you know, helps us to avoid boredom in what we're eating. And the reason why I think the reason why we get bored when we eat too much of the same thing is because that's nature, like pushing us to vary our diet so that we'll get, you know, a different set of nutrients. So it's not that like, it's bad for you to eat broccoli every day, but think of how much better you'll feel and how much happier you'll be if you eat broccoli on Monday and on Tuesday you eat kohlrabi or spinach or, you know, whatever it is that you like, and just try to kind of open it up. And certainly with animal protein, there's just a world of things that people tend to not eat because it's intimidating or they just know what they like and they stick to it. And I don't blame people for that because you know, most people are not food obsessed like we are. And, you know, food is just not something they think about that much. And they're in the supermarket and they're in a hurry and they know ground beef works. So they buy it. And I don't fault anyone for that. What we're hoping is that, you know, with our book and with this message in general, with all of us is that people will say, Oh, like, 
I'm at the supermarket and they have duck legs. I wonder what that would be like. Or they have, you know, here's this fish I've never heard of before. What if I asked the fishmonger or the fish seller at the supermarket, like, what do I do with this kind of fish? Or, you know, making something out of, you know, if you don't like straight, you know, don't want to eat like a piece of liver on your plate, maybe you can chop it up and put it into your burger and, you know, get those nutrients without it being scary. So just like trying to open up people's minds and their palates not in a punitive kind of way, but in like a celebratory way, like you get to eat all these delicious foods and you get to discover and share all these amazing foods. So, you know, we have vegetables in the book, we have desserts, we have cocktails, we have all kinds of things in there trying to, you know, like I said, be sort of happy and celebratory and also nourishing and nourishing on every level. So nourishing your body, but also nourishing your mind and your spirit, like you can eat these foods and enjoy them. You can give them to your family and they'll enjoy them. You know, you can, there's holiday meals, like you can share them with your loved ones, like trying to, you know, kind of bring us back to that place where we're eating whole, natural, unprocessed foods that are healthy for us, that also are delicious and easy to make. And then we can feel really good about eating and sharing with others. I think it's so important, you know, the, the whole concept of carnivore-ish is what I would definitely describe. That is the methodology behind how I eat. And for full disclosure, you know, this past year, especially with, you know, the looming pandemic, which I hope in 2022, we are talking about the past two years and we're not continuing to look forward, seeing the impact of, of the pandemic, but we use it as an opportunity to try a lot of different protein. And I'll be perfectly frank and say some of them were winners and some were not, you know, we did wild boar, we did ostrich, we did elk. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the elk can be a little too elky. I don't know how else to describe it, but there were definitely winners. I would say ostrich hot dogs, not so much. You know, they were a little dry. But with that being said, we've tried a lot of different proteins. And I love that there's a lot of encouragement in this book. And for many people that are, you know, looking at like, I'm scared of organ meats. I'm scared of trying new things. I always say like, maybe try bison, like ground bison, I think is a gateway to some of the more quote unquote exotic options that are out there. And I found a lot of my patients actually like bison more than beef. And they've been surprised to see that. And even most of the grocery stores, you know, certainly in the part of the country that I'm in, bison is becoming more readily available. It's not quite as exotic. Now elk and, you know, duck and maybe ostrich and wild boar, you may have to order specifically from particular vendors depending on where you are in the United States or abroad, but let's kind of unpack, you know, some of the benefits of a carnivore diet. Now, I think it's important and the listeners probably remember that when I got sick, so almost three years ago, the first nine months after being in the hospital for 13 days, I had to eat carnivore because my gut was wrecked by a 13 day hospitalization, six weeks of antibiotics, and antifungals, and my body couldn't handle any fiber. And what I found interesting was I dreamt of juicy hamburgers the second week I was in the hospital. In fact, I was obsessed. I mean, that was the only thing I wanted was a juicy, medium rare hamburger. And I ate a lot of them moving forward. But the point of why I'm sharing this, there, there can be a lot of beneficial reasons why people will gravitate towards carnivore, reducing inflammation in the gut for a lot of people can be healing from an illness. What are some of the benefits that you all have seen from working with clients if they're leaning in that direction, certainly less processed food is going to be hugely impactful, but what are some of the things that you've seen that have really improved someone's health profile by leaning into that animal-based protein? 
Mm, yeah. Well, first of all, I love that you say you tried a lot of different meats and some were winners and some were losers. Cause I love that. Like we wrote this book with that concept in mind. I wrote an entire book about organ meats. I don't like every organ meat. Like I almost feel sheepish saying it sometimes, but there's a couple that I'm like, not in a rush to eat every day, but that's the joy of it. Like if you try something and you don't like it, you learn something, you move on. If you try something and you do like it, you have a something completely new to enjoy in your life. So it's like a win-win situation either way. Right. And wild boar is delicious by the way. So good. Yes. Yes. I would say, and Beth, you can, I'm sure you'll have some more to add to this, but two of the things that come right off the top of my head, when I'm talking to clients about the benefits of eating animal protein, one is just that it is, you know, science backed, it's bioavailable nutrition in larger doses than you're going to get with vegetables. So if you want to get all of your vitamins and minerals and amino acids, which are the building blocks for our entire body growing muscle and our body's function. Everything that our body needs to thrive and operate well is available in meat and in higher doses in organ meats, which we can talk about if we want to, but it's, and our body readily accepts that. Whereas it doesn't always with plant foods and plant foods are usually not complete sources of like these amino acids, or they're just kind of smaller amounts. If you want to get all of that stuff you need from plants, you have to do so much more kind of like alchemy of like mixing and combining and eating a bunch of stuff to try and match what you're going to get from animal sources. So just from a purely nutrition standpoint, animal protein is the best. And then I would also say from a practical standpoint for women who are looking to get off this like dieting yo-yo roller coaster nightmare that so many of us are on where we're hungry, we're restrictive, we're binging, we're thinking about food all the time. There is nothing that is more satisfying like again, from a physiological perspective than protein. We all know that we can overeat carbs like name a carb source, we can sit there and eat it all day long because it's just not as nutrient dense. Our body burns through it quicker. You know, you eat a carb filled meal, you're hungry a half an hour later. And even fat, you know, a lot of women express that they don't find the ketogenic, like strict ketogenic diet as easy to follow maybe as they expected, because you have to eat less amounts because fat is more nutrient dense and when more calorie dense, right? So oftentimes they're like going from eating this super high carb diet to a high fat diet and they, their meals are like shrinking, which is kind of unpleasant for a lot of people, but protein is so satiating. You cannot, it's very hard to, and I've tried to overeat you know, a plate of steak or ground beef or fish, your body sends you very, very strong signals that you have had enough, that you are satisfied, that you've eaten enough. And so that helps people be nourished from their meals, be satisfied from their meals, not have to think about food every 20 minutes. And that's why I tell women too, like, you know, if you are a snacker and that's fine, eat protein for your snacks because we can always find room for a cookie or chips or crackers or pretzels. But if you are thinking about a snack and all you have in your fridge maybe is like, I don't know, you've got beef jerky and leftover chicken and whatever. And you're like, "Mm, I don't really want that right now. Maybe you're not that hungry. Actually, you were just looking to eat for another reason. So anyway, in summary, very, very satiating and very nutrient dense are my top two reasons. I think that's really important for people to understand. I love when people consider who've been doing a higher carbohydrate diet, thinking about lower carb, keto, if appropriate. But I agree with you that there are some pitfalls of keto and whether it's the, you know, 
blessing slash curse that fats are more calorically dense. They're more nutrient dense. I remind people you can't just have unwanted or you know unfettered access to nuts and cheese, although delicious. That's where sometimes see women getting into trouble, but also just the fact that not everyone breaks down fats the same way. I know for myself, and this is bioindividuality, I do better. This is one of the very few times you'll hear me say this sentence, plant-based fats, like olive oil, olives, coconut oil. I do better with those than I do with duck fat and tallow and lard. And that is just what's unique to me. My body does better with lower, you know, I would say less dense plant-based fats. But I find for a lot of women, it's either that or they just don't digest their fats well and they don't recognize some of the cues that their body's trying to tell them. So I think that's so, so important. Also the carbohydrate piece, we're not saying carbs are bad, but we will oftentimes not have that shut off. That satiety switch will not be triggered when we're consuming just a bunch of, whether it's popcorn or, you know, like tropical fruits, we were just in Costa Rica. And, you know, one of the things I love was that there was little to no access to anything process. But when they gave you, if you were out on a hike, if they gave you anything, they would come up with a piece of pineapple or some watermelon, which was delicious. It completely ravaged my CGM, although my glucose spike went up and came back down appropriately. I was shocked. I was like, okay, my blood sugar never goes that high, but it's in response to this kind of higher sugar tropical fruits. But for most women, they really are looking to change body composition, get healthier. And so they have to limit some of those types of foods. But what has been your experience as well when you're working with your clients and kind of devising menus, really encouraging women to to incorporate more protein, animal-based protein into their diets and to not feel encumbered by it. I think when someone's thinking about, you know, whether it's an egg white omelet, that's one of the common misnomers. People are afraid to eat those types of healthy fats. And so they restrict. And yet I remind them when you start hitting those protein macros, your satiety cues and your stomach and your brain, the communication is not a mismatch. And so you will naturally comfortably just stop eating. You're like, I don't need to continue eating because I really am genuinely full. Well, I think one of the things to keep in mind and something that I encourage people to think about is, you know, this notion of like, so you're trying to get enough protein, like you have to kind of start there. You want to get enough protein so that you feel satisfied. And then when I sort of get the message from another person that like, oh, but you know, I want to eat more plant-based, you know, I always say like, okay, well, let's look at like the best case scenario. Let's look at a complete protein that's plant-based, something like quinoa. You have to eat like three or four cups of it to reach the same amount of complete protein as you would get in like four ounce piece of steak. And even though it's a complete protein, it doesn't have the level of all the essential amino acids that a piece of steak does and the other nutrients that a piece of steak has. Plus, I just personally don't want to sit down and eat three or four cups of quinoa. Like that just doesn't appeal to me. Whereas like you put a steak in front of me and I will devour it pretty much any time of day. So I feel like that's always the sort of pushback that I give is like, yeah, we can talk about incorporating, you know, those plant-based proteins if you want to, but that can't be the main source of protein for you if body composition is your goal. And which is perfectly fine. Like if that is if weight loss or body composition is what you're going for, then yeah, you really have to look at like what the even though we're not counting calories, you still have to look at what the caloric load is of those foods and also just the basic appeal of those foods, because I really think that you have to enjoy what you're eating. Otherwise you won't stick with it. If I give you a meal plan and it's like, you know, full of three cups of quinoa per meal, like you're just not going to stick with that because that's not going to like speak to the 
kind of primal eater in all of us that, you know, really wants that animal protein. And again, I think that's nature kind of pushing us toward the food that's better for us. So it's fine to mix that in. If you really are, you know, sort of attached to having plant-based protein in your diet, you can incorporate some of those foods, but you're just not going to get where you want to go. I think. And of course, they're always going to be outliers. I mean, I always, I'm sure we've all had the person who says, look at this star athlete who, you know, is vegan or look at this person or that person. And it's like, there's always going to be an example. There's always going to be an outlier, somebody who's able to do that. But first of all, look at all the people who have done that and then turned around a year later and said, you know what, I've gone back to eating meat. And also like, are you a super Olympic athlete? No, I know I'm not. So just because that person can do that. Yeah. That person can also swim 800 meters in 10 seconds, but you know, you can't do that. I can't do that. So I think it's really, and also like, if you don't want to spend your whole day focused on food, if you don't want to, you know, be constantly worrying and tracking and trying to manage your diet in like a super clinical way, the easiest way to get out of that is to eat more animal protein. And I don't mean exclusively animal protein. And you, I mean, the original question you asked was like about the benefits of the carnivore diet. To me, there are some people for whom a straight carnivore diet is appropriate. There's no question. But for most of us, I think, you know, an animal protein forward approach is a better one where you are incorporating all kinds of, you know, vegetables and a little bit of fruit and, you know, all these other things. And carbs are definitely not the enemy, just, you know, in the right proportions. But there are times when even the average person can benefit from a carnivore diet, you know, kind of in short bursts. And sometimes I find I do it sometimes without even realizing it, like a couple of days will go by and I'll realize like, oh, I've only eaten animal protein for the last two days. I didn't even mean to, except for coffee. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, if you always hear people talking about like these juice cleanses or, you know, these like seven day cleanses or whatever. And I feel like if that appeals to you, if the idea of, you know, having like a cleanse for two days, three days a week, whatever, if that is something that you think will benefit you, like just to kind of reset, you know, you're coming out of the holidays and you drank a lot of alcohol or you ate a lot of sugar or whatever is sort of outside the norm, you've been traveling, whatever it is, you know, maybe try a carnivore reset for a few days and just, you know, without being too sort of anxious about it, just, you know, make your meals, you know, a few scrambled eggs for breakfast, if you eat breakfast and, you know, a plate full of, you know, a nice like piece of cooked salmon for lunch and, you know, maybe a burger patty for dinner and just try it for a day or two and see if it doesn't help you get rid of the cravings and just help you feel a little better. And if not, then bring back the vegetables, but Mm -hmm. it's something interesting that can be worth trying. Well, and I think the power of the NF1, meaning each one of us as bio-individuals may need something a little bit different. I know there are plenty of people that are doing like you mentioned, cleanses, or they're doing a week of a plant-based diet or a week of carnivore coming out of the holidays. And I remind people that more often than not, it's the change in our diets that will recalibrate our palates that will allow us to make better change choices and moving forward. We were away for the holidays. I came back and I said, okay, New Year's Eve, I'm going to enjoy this delicious steak dinner. I did make two desserts for my family. I enjoyed a little bit And I woke up the next day and I was like, okay, it's January 1st. We're back in the saddle. We've got, you know, all these other things coming up in early 2022. And I think so many times we have to focus on a goal in order to kind of get ourselves recalibrated, but more often than not kind of changing up what we're doing can allow our bodies to, you know, 
reduce the level of inflammation, kind of get our hormones better aligned, get those satiety cues recalibrated so that we'll make better choices, but always kind of acknowledging that for each one of us, that could look a little bit different and that's totally okay. Now, I want to make sure, because I got a lot of questions from listeners that wanted to talk about organ meat, also called awful. I want to make sure that I'm pronouncing that Okay. I think it's like awful, awful. It's like awful. tomato, tomato kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. I don't think so I, I wanted to make sure I'm properly pronouncing that. But for me, growing up with an Italian mom, my mom lovingly, I always like to say lovingly, my brother and I were required to have a liver dinner. It was liver and onions and my mom would throw in bacon. And of course, as kids, what would we do? We would eat the bacon. Maybe we ate some of the onions and we found liver to be terribly metallic. But I've come to find out that we'll use pluck, which is this wonderful creation by a colleague of mine you can throw that on just about anything and it's kind of a gateway into the indoctrination into the curiosity of organ meat so let's unpack that because i think for many people they're fascinated slash not sure how to cook these things you know kind of on the barometer or the, the if we're looking at a propensity of organ meats let's talk about the ones that are a little more mild maybe less texture all the way to the heavyweights. I'd love to kind of have you unpack that because I'm fascinated by this. And I enjoyed looking through your recipes and thought to myself, okay, I'm going to ask this question because I want to know, you know, where would be the place you would start if you're new to organ meats? Mm, very good question. <laughs> so we do touch on organ meats in our book, right? That's not kind of the main thrust of it because again, we really wanted to aim for like things that seemed at least somewhat maybe familiar, maybe healthier, more meaty versions of meals you're already making, things that are kind of an easier sell than organ meats. But we do include some because we think they're important and they can be delicious. But, you know, shameless plug, I wrote a whole book behind me dedicated to organ meats. So I believe that they are very, very important. I believe that they're like undervalued in our kind of modern society. And by that, I mean like Western modern society, everywhere else in the world, everyone's still doing this. You know, like I would get so many comments when I was writing this book from people all over the world who were like, I eat organs, I eat nose to tail. This is not new to me. So I think it's really just in some select places on the planet where we have the odd privilege of like wasting so much of our food. So we just pick what we consider to be the choicest cuts. But I would say that if I'm just going to give kind of a really quick like elevator pitch on how to get into organ meats. And this is for meat eaters who are already open-minded because it would be a much harder sell if I'm like talking to vegans right now, but if you already eat animals, if you recognize that they're very, it's a nutritious part of your diet and you appreciate it and you respect it and you want to get the most out of the meat that you're eating, but you're a little nervous, understandably so about organ meats because they aren't talked about enough. They aren't shown enough. And pretty much everybody has that one story of when they were a kid and they ate liver and onions and it tasted like leather and it was gross. To which I say, look, I grew up eating like boiled Brussels sprouts. I hated those too, but no one says never eat those. They're terrible. People say eat your vegetables because they're healthy. So we need to start telling people eat your liver because it's healthy. But anyway, I would say that some things to do to start getting into it are to, first of all, have a professional, if you're fortunate enough and you're able to have a professional, make you some stuff, you know, go to Beth's house. She'll make you something delicious <laughs> um, or go to a restaurant and go to a Mexican place and get beef tongue tacos or go to an Asian restaurant and get, you know, pho that has all kinds of organs and stuff in the soup. Like have a professional who knows how to make organ meat dishes, make them for you. So you know what it's supposed to taste like, which 
invariably is delicious. So do that. Start with that. I would also say start small in terms of small animal organs. So the smaller the animal, generally speaking, the milder their organs are going to taste. So a chicken liver is a lot milder, dare I say, almost sweet and delicate compared to like a buffalo liver, which is going to be a pretty strong tasting cut of meat. And same goes for hearts, you know, gizzards, like anything, just start smaller animals, work your way up. Like even a lamb liver, lamb tongue, lamb heart, I think tastes better and kind of lamby, which is good compared to like these larger animals. And then lastly, and Beth, you can finish up for me here, but I would say that one, another kind of practical thing to do is to start with heart the organ heart, as opposed to like liver or kidney or spleen or some of these other more texturally challenging and also stronger tasting organs. Like when people think of organ meats, they think, okay, I have to eat liver and I just have to choke it down because that's the healthiest cut. And yes, liver is kind of the like top in terms of it's, you know, nutrient density, your best bang for your buck, but heart is also very nutrient dense. It's also a muscle meat. So it's very similar in texture to like beefy kind of steaky sort of food that you're already probably eating. And it's very versatile. So you can do so many things with it. You can stuff it and roast it. You can chop it up and do a stir fry. You can make it into jerky. You can do anything you can think of that you could do with any other cut of meat, really, you can do with heart. And they're pretty easy to to get. Usually if you have any kind of like butcher shop or farmer's market or anything, generally you can find hearts. So yeah, those are my main tips. So uh, we were talking before we started recording about how Ashley really challenged me to get into organ meats because I mean, I think I have like a pretty varied palate and I'm pretty fairly adventurous as an eater, but I grew up in a household where we did not have organ meat and I found it really intimidating, but Ashley really encouraged me. And she said, you are going to develop some of the organ meat recipes for this book. (laughs) And I'm really, I'm so grateful because I did it and I'm so glad I did it. And I discovered all these foods that I didn't know I liked, and I really do. So I would echo what Ashley said about heart, especially like I developed a beef heart recipe for the book that is sort of my version of a Peruvian street food called anticuchos. So it's just basically like skewered meat, it's grilled, and then it's marinated. And then it has this delicious like herby green sauce that goes with it. It's really easy to make. The hardest thing about the dish is cleaning, like cleaning all the pieces of the heart off the organ to prepare it. And if that freaks you out, which I get because there I was in my kitchen, like holding a heart in my hands, it's a strange feeling if it's not something you're used to. And I definitely wasn't. You can ask your butcher to do it for you. Ask them to, you know, start there and ask them to clean it for you and prep it for you. And they will do it. And then all you have to do is cook it. And it really is a lot like cooking steak. I mean, it looks similar. It has a similar texture when it's raw. It's very easy to work with and it's very forgiving. So definitely ask for help. The other thing I would say, and another thing that I learned from Ashley is to chop up liver really finely and mix it into your ground beef with a little bit of bacon. So, and again, I tried this a few times by myself and it didn't really work the way I wanted it to. I liked the taste, but just chopping it super finely, I had trouble with. So I asked the butcher to do it. I asked them to make me a mix that was 80% 
grass-fed ground beef, 10% liver and 10% bacon. And they, there was a minimum. They wanted me to do three pounds, but like we go through a pound of meat in no time in our house. So I was like, yeah, sure. I did it. It was not only was it like fantastic. And my 12 year old who is not an adventurous eater really liked it and like eats it and is totally fine with it. I'm telling you, this kid is not, I mean, she's a good eater, but she's definitely not one to like go outside her comfort zone. And I absolutely told her what it was because I don't believe in hiding what you're feeding your kids from them. Cause it's a terrible way to make them not trust you. I was very open with her and she ate it and she really liked it. So, and then you just use your ground beef, however you use it, make burgers out of it or meatloaf or whatever your use is for ground beef. It's delicious. You don't really taste the liver. It tastes like just like meatier meat, if that makes any sense. But ask for help, have the butcher help you. And if you tell your butcher, if you have a good butcher in your town or your city and you ask them to help you incorporate organ meat, like they will love it. They will have ideas for you. You know, first of all, they want to sell those organs that they keep in their shop, but also like, you know, they love meat. So they, I mean, the butcher shop that I go to, like they see me coming and they're like, oh, it's you. Cause they know I'm always going to ask like crazy questions and they love that. Mm -hmm. So don't be afraid to ask for help. Definitely try it in a restaurant first and then experiment at home, but ask the butcher to help you with whatever you're struggling with around it. And, you know, you were saying before, Cynthia, that like with your family, you had some with the game meets, like some successes and some not so successes, but you probably laugh about that, right? That's probably like a good memory, even though you didn't like the food or someone in your family didn't like it. And I think that's, you know, budget questions aside, because, you know, many of us are on a budget and I don't mean to make light of that, but for the most part, you know, you have to have a failed meal every now and then, and Lord knows I have them too. We all do. Like you just have to laugh about it because it happens, you know, and then open a can of tuna and be done with it and forget about it. But those are often some of the most fun memories, you know, that we have with our families are those meals that didn't go well. You know, they usually don't remember like, you know, the chicken that you make all the time that they love, which is fine to make. What they remember is like, oh my God, remember the time you tried that crazy elk? It was so weird, you know, but you laugh about it. So I feel like there's nothing to lose and organ meats tend to be inexpensive too. So even if budget is a concern, you tend to not lose anything by trying it. There's also a chicken liver recipe in Ashley's book, It Takes Guts, which is like the perfect place to start if you find liver intimidating because you mix, like you cook the livers, the chicken livers and a bunch of butter and you mix it with alcohol and you turn it into a dip and it's just luscious. It's so good. I mean, listen, when you, when all else fails, you add some booze and some butter and you're good to go. It's Um, really good. I do want to add just one thing because Beth, you reminded me of it when you were speaking about some other like benefits and things. I just want people to know about the organ meats. If they're listening again, and they're like a little intimidated, a little interested, but like maybe feeling overwhelmed, you know, you just said, don't hide what you're feeding to your kids. And that's probably good advice, but I will say be fine with kind of, you know, the organ meats being just an addition to your meal. You don't have to suddenly eat a 12 ounce kidney with like, you know, something on the side, like you can mix these things in subtly with the foods that you already like. We have a lot of recipes like that in both books that are like, let's just take this burger or these like goat cheese filled meatballs or whatever that are already delicious. And let's just add a little subtle, like nutrient density to it. So you don't have to feel like it has to be this major massive change. And you have to suddenly start liking the texture of 
kidney or whatever. And then lastly, you also don't have to eat a ton of it. You know, you can get, because they're so nutrient dense, you can eat a couple ounces of liver, you know, once or twice a month, maybe. And you are getting like noticeable, significant amounts of these nutrients. So people ask me all the time, they're like, geez, like how much of this, you know, I can get on board, but like, do I have to eat this? Cause, and maybe they think, cause I post about it a lot that I'm eating it all the time. And I probably do eat it more than the average person, but I'm not eating organ meats every day. I'm making an organ meat related meal, maybe once a week. And I have noticed a drastic improvement in just my overall level of like health and well-being. So you don't have to eat a liver steak every day to get the benefits. Well, I love that you both have made this so approachable. I do have a couple questions that came from listeners that I haven't incorporated into our discussion as of yet. Number one, people wanted to know, Ashley, what got you so interested in organ meats? Was it just being open-minded at a restaurant that drove you down a rabbit hole? Obviously, you've got a whole other book devoted to this. And if you haven't checked out that book, you definitely want to. But obviously, carnivore-ish is you know, the super accessible, you know, gateway to integrating some of these nutrient dense foods. And especially for myself, I mean, I now feel invigorated to be able to take this on and not feel quite so intimidated. Yeah. I mean, I think looking back, I was always like Beth, like really into food, just really into it. But mostly it was just, I liked eating it. I never, ever thought I would write a cookbook. I never thought of myself as any kind of chef or adventurous, you know, in the kitchen personally, but I always liked to try new things. It was just one area of my life that I felt it's such a low risk endeavor to be adventurous because what's the worst that could happen? You try something and you don't like it. Like, did you die? No, like you're fine. You know, you tried something new. And I, and also looking back before I thought about food or cared about nutrition, I did always kind of gravitate towards like rare steak and like strong tasting fish. And like, we kind of just stuff, you know, when like in a world where we eat skinless chicken breasts. I was eating like the gnarly bits of the turkey and you know what I mean? So I kind of always had that propensity. And then when I was an adult, I graduated university. I moved to New York. I lived in New York for a while on and off. And that's of course where I made friends with Beth. And I just went to a lot of different restaurants. And if there was something on the menu that I didn't recognize, that's the thing I ordered. I mean, that was kind of just my approach to eating was I just wanted to try everything. And then coincidentally with that, I was also like, you know, continuing in my career as a journalist and as a fitness and wellness and health professional. And I was learning about ancestral eating and paleo eating and whole foods eating. And it just kind of seemed like the next iteration for me eating whole foods, caring about where those foods come from, being more mindful about where my food comes from. It was sort of the next step to then really pay attention to like the sustainability part of it and the honoring the animal part of it and to make use of every little bit that I could. And so it was just being open-minded and wanting to try and wanting to learn more about it. And then as I got into it, I realized I wasn't just doing this for show or for an experiment. I actually really enjoyed it. And there were enough people responding to me and being interested in it that I was like, Hey, maybe there's a small weirdo community out there for me that is interested in this and we can learn about it together. So that's kind of how it happened. I love hearing that because it definitely gives me some insights into how this has been this beautiful extension. Beth questions for you, your three favorite pantry items that you use to season meat with. Mm. Ooh, I love those kinds of questions. It's like, yeah, on the spot. Yeah. No one's going to like this answer, but my first, my top answer is really good salt. You and I use the same kind of salt. I use Redmond real salt. 
to me, that is like the most important thing is that you use good salt and use a lot of it, more of it than you think. I read somebody online said the other day, like you should have 30% more salt on your food than you think. And I was like, well, I don't know how they came up with that number, but I say this all the time. Like, especially if you're seasoning a steak or a piece of meat before you sear it, you want to salt, put the amount of salt that you think it needs and then do that again (laughs) because you need more than you think. So salt is definitely a big one. I mean, beyond that, I also use pluck seasoning. I use that a lot, especially in eggs. I feel like it's just so delicious. I mean, I don't know how to say what my favorites are. I mean, I would say a good place to start because I think what the question that this person is probably really asking is what should they keep in their pantry? Mm -hmm. So what I always recommend to people, if you don't have a lot of spices or you're not really familiar with a lot of spices is to get, start with blends. So start with things like things like curry powder and Italian seasoning and taco seasoning and za'atar. So all of these are seasoning blends. And it's just nice because you get like a lot of layers of flavor and a lot of varied flavor, but you don't have to do the work of combining the spices yourself. So I would say like, you know, definitely start there. And then if you want to expand beyond sort of the normal or sort of more pedestrian or regularly used spice blends, then when you're in the store, look for the ones that seem less familiar and look at what they have in them. So if you really like Italian seasoning, you may like herbs de Provence, for example. It's a slightly different mix of herbs and there's some overlap, but then that's another blend, but it may be a different flavor profile than you're used to. With Middle Eastern spice blends, there are thousands of them. Same with Indian, there are thousands of them. So you can kind of expand from there. So definitely keep a lot of blends in your house. And the other thing I'll say about spices is that they try, if you can only buy what you'll use. So if you shop in a place that has bulk spices, or if you're lucky to have ethnic markets around you, buy a small amount because after about anywhere between three and nine months, your spices will lose their potency. So they won't go bad. It won't hurt you. But if your spices have lost their color, their bright, vibrant color, and if you open the jar or the bag and the smell doesn't hit you in the face, Mm. they're not as fragrant. That means that they're just not at their peak. They're not at their best. And you really want those spices to make your food sing. So I hope that answers that question. No, no, it's so valuable. And I probably sound like a weirdo, but I travel anytime I leave the house. I have a little thing of Redmond's in my purse because Mm -hmm. I'm such a salt snob Mm -hmm. that I jokingly, it comes everywhere. And every time I go on a trip, I always take a photo of it wherever I am. And I know the Redmond's people, they find that hilarious. Well, ladies, I want to be super respectful of your time. Let the listeners know how to connect with you, how to purchase your book, which I already have on pre-order and when it officially is available on Amazon and elsewhere. So it's available for pre-order now. The book is called Carnivore-ish. It's available wherever you buy your books. And you can find me, the best place to find me is on Instagram. My Instagram is cookiepie0402. Cookiepie is what my mother called me until the day she died. (laughs) So cookiepie0402 is the best way to reach me. It's the cutest Instagram handle of all time. (laughs) I love how we just talk about steaks all day and your Instagram handle is cookie pie. It's so cute. (laughs) Yeah. So same thing. I'm mostly on Instagram. My handle is the muscle maven. And you can also learn more on my website, which is just my name, ashleyvanhouten.com. And yeah, carnivorish comes out 
February 8th is the plan. And my book that's already out there called It Takes Guts, you can get that wherever books are sold as well. Awesome. Well, so grateful for both of you. Thank you for carving time out of your busy schedules to come on the podcast. I can't wait to see your new book. I know it's going to be amazing. It'll be incredibly valuable to listeners. Thank you. Pleasure. Thanks, Thanks Cynthia. for having us. Thanks for listening to Everyday Wellness. If you loved this episode, please leave us a rating and review. Subscribe and remember, tell a friend. And if you want to connect with us online, visit the link in the show notes.